Hey everyone, and welcome to the Fully Occupied Podcast. This is the show that explores the most crucial ideas that are shaping the future of real estate, technology, and work. Hosted by your friends here at Occupier, we bring you some of the most interesting people around and dive into the topics that impact most everybody. Let's get into it. What's up, everybody? I'm Matt Jafoon, one of the co-founders of Occupier. Today, we're talking about how a tech company executes a real estate strategy while in hyper-growth mode with Mac Friedman, head of global real estate at DraftKings. Mac has seen it all from the earliest stages, so make sure you listen all the way through. Thanks. Okay, now it's time to welcome in Mac Friedman to Fully Occupied. Mac, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Thank you for having me. Uh, we're doing great, too. Appreciate you joining us for the pod. Yeah, happy to be here. Great. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, describe your background in commercial real estate, tell us about your role at DraftKings, what your mandate was when you joined the company. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is fully in real estate finance. And uh, I remember when I was in college, I had my sights set on going into more of the investment banking track, try to get into private equity or venture capitalism and kind of go through there. But my, uh, Career led me to getting my first job at Tishman Spire, which is a pretty large and well-known global developer and land loan, landowner. Uh, they do all their own leasing. So it was you know, a jack of all trades for Tishman. And then about a year into that, just realized it wasn't uh, exactly for me and was able to find a really cool opportunity at DraftKings to join in a actual non-real estate related role. Uh, but I did so with kind of the foresight and understanding that no one was doing the real estate work for them internally. And based on the growth trajectory that I was seeing, uh, I knew that that was going to be a need down the road. And I ended up kind of taking a little bit of a risk, trusted my gut and went over into DraftKings' world. And within a few months, I was able to kind of work with HR to get myself into a role that was more encompassing of my background and so that was, shockingly enough, about five years ago to the date. Um, I think I actually started five years ago this week. And it's been a wild ride ever since. So, you know, my role as it relates to commercial real estate, per se, has been a lot more with dealing with internal lease administration, managing our leases, expanding the company, uh, working with the broker relations, and really just doing everything necessary to actually open a physical office. And there's obviously a lot of work that goes into the back end of that. So a little bit of a unique perspective, if you will, as it relates to quote unquote commercial real estate, but that's what I've been doing. Awesome. Yeah. I think it's, it's probably a really like lesser known part about that world, like joining such an early stage kind of high growth company is a lot of times they haven't even scoped out like what the real estate function is. And, you know, somebody either absorbs that work or, you know, it takes a little longer for the company to mature before they hire somebody to actually like run that organization. So it's interesting that, you know, you kind of evolved into that role. Um, wh when you joined, like, I imagine things were kind of just like fires burning everywhere. What were some of the most like glaring issues that you noticed, like when you first got up to speed, like on the real estate front? Yeah. And I guess like before I even get into that, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head there where uh, people, especially startups, they're not thinking about, oh, do I need an internal real estate person? Right. Because it's usually going to start with someone in a CFO capacity, uh, maybe in an HR capacity, but normally more on the finance side. And then when it becomes a glaring problem, that's when people start to worry about it. It's only when it's in front of their face. And honestly, I think that's a big reason why the brokerage community exists, right? Because people say, oh, shoot, I have no one to do this and I have no idea how to do it. 
and they've got brokers emailing them every day because everyone wants a piece of the pie. Uh, so that's been really interesting to experience. And going back to your question about, you know, what was I thrown into? What were kind of the fire drills that I saw? When did I realize there were problems? Uh, it was right away. And it's funny because when I started out, we were about 100 people, uh, a little bit over. And we were working on opening up the second floor of our space. So we had about uh, 10,000 square feet on one floor, uh, but not a very efficient floor layout. We took it in like a less than a three-year sublease. And then we took another about 12,000 square feet on the third floor of our building. So we're already separated. We were on three and five. And I got in there and I'm starting to kind of, you know, take my initial notes, walking around the space and seeing everything. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, we only have like 10% of the seats available right now. And I submit all these meetings with all these hiring plans. Like, what are we doing? And over the next few months, I very quickly came to learn that there was no communication whatsoever, no collaboration whatsoever between recruiting and you can't even call it facilities because the department didn't exist at that point. And that was absolutely glaring. And that sent me into kind of panic mode right away, or it was like, oh my God, I need to figure this out and figure it out yesterday to have a shot at if we need to, if we're going to keep hiring these people. And that's been one of the biggest uh, glaring problems with DraftKings, I would say in general. And I calling it a problem is probably not the right word because I think any company would be thrilled with the quote unquote problem, right? Of having to hire too many people. Uh, our business has been growing so quickly. We're trying to offer more products. We're trying to take over the market. So it's just a constant inflow of new hires. The problem with that is, you know, being a startup company, being a well-funded startup company, right? Where money is usually not an issue and we can kind of do what we need to do to get to where we want to go to. That gives a lot more freedom to hiring managers. That gives a lot more freedom for people to make a pitch to say, hey, I need these people. And the problem was there was never any collaboration with myself or my team to actually make that happen. And so when we were at our old location in Boston before we moved to our awesome headquarters, uh, we were doing construction there for literally three years straight. And while it was some legitimate expansions of you know 10,000 square feet here, uh, 7,000 square feet there, it was also constant work of you know trying to create legitimate relationships with the vendors out there. Uh, the people that, frankly, brokers have no idea that really even exist, right? We're talking uh, people from Spectrum. We're talking people from Lantel. We're talking people from WB, really more on the engineering backside of it to figure out, okay, what can we do with our space and the way it exists to support the way that we're growing? And what that ended up happening for us was we did a lot of uh, work that was basically drop data and power into every wall down every ceiling, down every column that we possibly can have to get us to a point where we can put desks anywhere. And it sounds very remedial, but as you mentioned before, when companies aren't thinking about this stuff, they don't really care at that point. The thing they care about is right. get me the people and get them in, get butts and seats, right? That's what matters. And we just had to be flexible around it. So that was really kind of the biggest glaring thing where to sum it up, just an overall lack of planning. And I think you see that at a lot of companies uh, and that creates jobs in our world. Yeah, I, just, I remember coming to visit you back at the old office, and and uh, I think it was like you were you you were clearly like flustered on that day because whoever it was just came to you and was just like, hey, by the way, like we need space for like twenty new engineers and we need it uh, in a month, right. and you were like, that's just not possible. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, it just I don't know how I'm going to do that, and it was like, oh, by the way, like there's no more space on this floor, and, and we need to we need to try to do this within like the confines of the, the four walls that we have. So like what, wh what is it like actually like working at a company where things could like literally change on a daily basis? Like you could yeah. be in the middle 
mid-flight on like a project that you've gotten the green light on that actually feels like it's going to happen. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, you know, hit pause. we got to find 20,000 square feet in Vegas, right. or we're going to plant the flag in like Estonia for an engineering team or something like that. Tell us about kind of like how those grenades get like dropped into your world and, and how you have to like adapt your workflow to be flexible enough to deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, when I first started at DraftKings, candidly, I was really young and this was all a big learning experience for me. And it was really overwhelming. Um, you, we probably had multiple meetings on days where I was completely overwhelmed. And what I kind of learned along the way on how to deal with it is, uh, you know, you have to understand a couple of things, which is one, uh, whether you're talking to a temporary employee who's there for two months to help out with NFL tickets, or you're talking to the CEO of our company, everyone's just a person at the end of the day. And that's gone a long way for me because I think there can be somewhat of an intimidation factor, right? When you have these higher up people telling you, hey, I need 20 engineers and seats for them next week. A lot of unrealistic expectations. And what I kind of quickly came to understand at DraftKings was people are always going to push you to do more than you think you're capable of. And that can create a really uncomfortable situation, right? There's no denying it, especially with everything going on in the world today with so much more attention on general mental health um, I've had my days and nights of really extreme anxiety related to this job. But what I've realized over time is there's a really good way to approach this. And one, it starts with trying to remain calm and understanding that people above you are going to push you for what might seem unrealistic. But keep in mind as well, in a company like DraftKings, it's these executives pushing for what's something that might seem unrealistic that has gotten them to create a multi-billion dollar company. And you have to appreciate that. And the other side of it too is, don't sit there and freak out about everything that could go wrong, right? Try to take a step back and understand what can I do to create a solution here, right? And I've tried to really shift my mindset and thinking to be more optimistic and to be more solution-oriented than complaining. And that's really gone a long way for me. And what that's allowed me to do is come across in a calm manner to where I'm not freaking out, so they're not going to freak out. And surrounding myself with the right people was really the most important thing because by surrounding myself with the right people, I'm able to do all that other stuff I talk about and set realistic expectations. So if someone comes to me and says, Hey, we need those 20 seats by in a week from now. Well, that actually might not be possible. Right. But I'm able to then go to them and not say, Hey, we can't do this. It's all right. Sounds good. We understand the request. Here's what we're doing to actually make this happen. Realistically, the timeline here is going to be a month from now because we need to tear through a few walls. We need to add some data and power. The lead time on desks is, say, two weeks, et cetera. But we've already talked to IT and we figured out that we can actually house them in a conference room for now, or we can have them work from home for now, coming up with alternative solutions. And, you know, the DraftKings experience has been unique because we've been a growing company. We're changing as we go. But there are really a lot of pros to that because everyone is figuring out as they go. And the the quicker I understood that, the more successful I became. And it made me a little more comfortable in my own skin where I, you know, it's like, hey, people trust me to do my job. They know I'm going to do it well. And I am the person in the driver's seat. And I just have to set those expectations and have a calm, cool, collected head about it. Yeah. I think it really goes back to what you said, which is like, it's all about people. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, the success of your company is totally dependent on how, you know, well the employees um, do their jobs and, and how comfortable they feel at work and how motivated and fulfilled they are on their, you know, on their job, which part of that is like who they sit next to, where they come into the office, what they get for lunch, like how easy their commute is, like all of those things that kind of like factor into a real estate decision 
you know, play way more of a role than people think. People think it's just about like square footage and rental rate. Right. But at the end of the day, like everything that you've just been describing to us here on the show has really just been about like nuts and bolts and like managing all these intricacies of the process, which is, is something that I think like, um, you know, outsiders from the commercial real estate industry just think it just, it's about deals, but it really isn't. But speaking of deals, like, you know, obviously you guys signed a huge lease a couple of years ago, um, in the back bay in Boston. Um, congrats on that. I know that that was kind of your crowning achievement to date at the point. Tell us a little bit about like the ups and downs of that process. Like when did you identify that? Like, look, we got to get all these people under one roof. Um, we need cool space. We, this is our budget. And, you know, how did that align with kind of like the overall success, like of the future of the business? Yeah. So obviously a lot to unpack there. I'll try to hit on everything. Uh, but you know, we were at a point back in 2016 where we had just completed a 10,000 square foot expansion at our old building. Uh, and our headcount was, I want to say around 200 people. And at that point we were gearing up, I believe to close a couple really big funding deals uh, and finish up another round. And as we're doing that, I'm starting to see these headcount plans and it's starting to get us up from like a minimum of 500, probably closer to six, 700 people in Boston over the next three to five years. And I had obviously kind of taken on this role with the intention to hopefully have the opportunity to do one of these really big projects, like you just said, and really try to put a stamp on everything. And seeing those numbers, it was pretty clear and evident that like, hey, we need to get ourselves into a much bigger space to actually accommodate the growth. And our biggest pain points as a company right now is we're on three separate floors. They are not contiguous and they are in two separate elevator banks. So people are spending legitimately probably close to an hour a day traveling to and from meetings because they're on all these floors. So those things right there were pretty easy to kind of help make the ask. Uh, what became more complicated, of course, was due to the nature of DraftKings. Uh, you know, we went through a failed merger through this. Uh, we actually ended up putting this project on hold for a year. Uh, and there were a lot of kind of roadblocks along the way that made this super, super complicated. That being said, uh, I was able to, and we talked about this a minute ago, surround myself with the right people. Uh, I am lucky enough to, you know, my job before DraftKings was in commercial real estate. Uh, and I have family connections to the architecture and design world. So I was able to kind of have a good grasp of what was going on in the city of Boston for the architects, for the architects and who were the players in the market. And we ran a really thorough RFP process there. And, you know, I picked a firm called IA, Interior Architects, and the biggest reason I picked them, you know, in part was due to their portfolio of work. They've been doing a lot of tech company buildouts, which was great. But the real reason I picked them was when I went through an interview process with them, while their managing principal, she was fantastic and I had known her previously, we had a great connection. That was all fine and dandy. But I'm also not naive enough to think that the managing principal of this firm is going to be the one doing the actual work on this project, right? It's going to be her team. And it was very evident through that interview process that their team had a lot of experience with all the changing. They were very organized. And then there were people that I could trust and actually collaborate with to support me. And that was probably the best decision I made through the process was hiring these folks. Because what we were able to then do was we ran, I would say, one of the most thorough visioning and programming uh, efforts that the city has probably ever seen. Uh, we spent over 50 hours interviewing people at DraftKings. I'm talking literally from our CEO down to those temporary employees. So we could find out everything that people want. And the good thing for me was that 
I got to a point in my career at DraftKings where I was far enough into my tenure there and I had earned enough trust to where people let me kind of run with it. And I would obviously give our executives and our CFO specifically updates each week and keep it going. But, you know, I was able to get the right people around me who were going to go through a proper planning process, get me the renderings that I need, send any drawings I need on time, get me my updated budgets, really the whole entire package uh, when I need it in high quality work. And so trust was there. And there was never a part through the project where the executives were like, oh my God, we're supposed to move in three months and I have no idea what's happening. Are we okay? And in fact, I will give myself a pat on the back. We ran this so smoothly that we didn't have a single executive visit that office space until literally three days before we moved in and the space was actually done. So that was a really good sign that I did surround myself correctly with the right people. Uh, and we were able to produce a really great result. So it's a combination of, you know, right place, right time, surround myself with the right people and frankly, not screw things up enough to where they felt like I couldn't do the job. <laughs> uh, that's really the candid answer to it. Yeah. It's interesting that you, um, really just spoke about like the design process and the visioning and like the internal buy-in on it. Um, and you omitted the actual, like finding the real estate and like doing a deal part yeah. of it. Obviously I'm an ex broker. So my mind always goes to like, how did you find a hundred thousand square feet on one floor in Boston? Like yeah. walk us through the, the site selection process, how you dealt with the market dynamics, negotiating with your landlord, all that kind of stuff that, you know, um, you know, really ultimately ends up with that ink on the lease that you can start banging hammers. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because you brought up the good point there of like, I omitted the broker stuff and, you know, like the broker that we work with, he's a powerhouse in Boston. He's fantastic. I couldn't do my job without him. That being said, I'm also, I think, pretty aware of like my personal capabilities. And one thing I learned pretty early on in working commercial real estate for Tishman was when I was doing leasing work with them, you learn very quickly that like, your quote unquote leasing pitch or sales pitch for this space is really not going to be any determining factor as to whether or not that potential tenant takes the space, right? The tenant is going to take the space if it works well for them financially and it's a good location and they can build the space that they want, right? And I think that that's something that the brokerage community purposely overcomplicates because that's their job and they want to show that they can add value, right? I get that. It makes sense. And a lot of companies, they do add a lot of value. For me personally, having that background, that's not where the value was needed. For me, it was much more on the relationship standpoint and leveraging, as you kind of said, our landlord to get us a good deal. So going back to what I had mentioned earlier, where the biggest problem for us was having these separated floors and everything and having all these issues getting to meetings and people didn't feel like they were working at the same company, et cetera. One of our biggest things was we need to make this so it's not a huge change in commute for people and we want to bring everybody together. Now, bringing everyone together could have been done in multiple ways, right? We looked at a lot of spaces that were, you know, three, four floors. We could put a staircase in between, et cetera. But uh, we had already been doing business with Oxford Properties. Uh, they're here in Boston. They came into the market in 2014, I think, in a big purchase. And uh, we'd had a really good relationship with them at 125 Summer Street, which was our old building. And they had been, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, there's always going to be the business side of it. But from a personal side, really make the effort to actually understand DraftKings, understand our business, understand our growth. And that was really, really valuable for us and allowed us to do things like take on all these little blocks of space. It allowed us to do something like sign a one-year extension on all of our space, which is something that you know typically you wouldn't be able to do. <clears throat> so little things like that had us motivated to try to work with them if it made sense. 
And it just so happened that they had this vacant space over at uh, 222 Berkeley Street in 500 Boylston, which is a dual asset, where a publishing company had recently vacated and left all this old space. And they had the you know, state of mind to say, you know what? We can make this work if we actually knock down a con- this combining wall here and actually make this into one big floor plate. And what that provided was a 105,000 square foot floor plate that spans a whole city block. And it's the biggest one in the city of Boston. It's really unique. And for me, having the kind of tenure, as we talked about at DraftKings, uh, I know that our CEO likes something. He likes things that are unique. He likes breaking the mold. And being able to go to them and say, guys, listen, we found a space that we're getting a really good price on that we feel good about that works with our numbers. We can hold our entire employee population on one single floor and we can do all this other stuff, right? Going through the design of designing an all hand space, designing a cafe, designing a whole speaker system, a UX lab, uh, you know, you name it, we've got it. Barbershops, salons, showers, et cetera. We can do this all on one floor. And when I was able to show that we're able to literally just eliminate the issues that we're having with our physical space while getting a really good deal compared to the market, while giving us the ability to grow in that same building, while being in the prime real estate of Boston, it honestly was a no brainer. So once again, it was, I'd be lying to you if I said it was like a ton of hard work to get it there. It was a lot of right place, right time. The right space was available for us when we were looking and it made sense from a cost perspective, but that's really how we got there. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. The space is the commodity piece of it. Finding it, you know, was the easy part. Obviously the, the tough stuff is like developing that awesome relationship that you had with your landlord, you know, letting them, you know, having them bet on you that, you know, you're, you're going to eventually pay off as a big tenant and then, you know, putting the work in, you know, pre-deal to, to get everything to a place where you, you get, you get that perfect space that, you know, everybody loves from the CEO on down. I've been in the space. It's, it's incredible. Um, your reception lobby has more flat screen TVs than you know, most sports bars, which is, which is saying a lot. Um, well, so that's the headquarters lease. Obviously, you've grown since then. I think you you you've actually succeeded in a merger recently. Um, now you have you know two companies rolled up into one. You know, close to twenty five properties around the world. Tell us a little bit about what it's like now to kind of start branching out into other markets, understanding how to deal with like international real estate, how you're kind of tracking all of this stuff and, and making sure that every constituent like within the business from, you know, uh, every part of the world and every department is, is on the same page. Yeah. So, you know, very honestly, it's a work in progress, right? And it's going to continue to be a work in progress. I think that in our situation, so to give a little more detail, right. Uh, we just went through a merger and an acquisition, uh, which was kind of a combo move to double our size, double our value while also going public. So more or less trying to triple everything. And by doing that, you know, we ended up acquiring this amazing company called SP Tech, who they've developed uh, software that is going to really help DraftKings own our own product and own our own platform, which is really, really important to the future success of our business. And, you know, going through it right now, kind of still in this first six months, it's been a lot of trying to get everything organized and also just doing the right thing, right? That's like a, not to sound corny here, but that's a company value that I actually try to really adhere to as much as I can, where I find that, you know, the more you can really just let your moral compass guide you, the better you can be. And in our situation in particular, you know, while we were lucky enough to retain, I think just about everyone on the SB tech side, uh, you know, we are trying to be sensitive to the fact that we're buying them, right? We're the ones who are coming in and taking over all their stuff. 
And they obviously have grown to be a thousand person company in a really successful manner as well. And there's no reason why I or anyone at DraftKings should be coming into that situation thinking that the way we do things is necessarily better than the way they do things. So for me, you know, I've tried to have the utmost respect for my counterpart over at SB Tech, realizing that he has done his part to design an amazing portfolio of space for them that has worked for them and really work with him to start to actually, you know, figure out what did we need to do in the first 90 days. So for us, what that looked like was, first of all, it was a full rebrand, right? So we've been trying to navigate that through COVID uh, and getting all the SB Tech logos removed inside the space on buildings, et cetera, replace all that with DraftKings because we need people to feel like they're a part of one company. Uh, it's been work on, you know, for now, making sure that the international offices are now more under his management and the domestic ones in the United States are more under mine. So it makes a little more sense from a time zone perspective and all that. Uh, but, you know, as you go through it all, then the future of it, obviously, is much more becomes much more of a strategic initiative uh, that's more from a corporate development standpoint than anything else. Right. Figuring out where are we efficient in hiring people? Where are we losing a lot of money due to open seats? Where should we be hiring in the coming years? Right. So what this is going to look like going forward for us is while there are a lot of projects underway, we're going to try to then make our space to be the most efficient for us. Right. We're dealing in an environment right now with COVID where, frankly, we have to be under the assumption that the physical office is going to change. It's really tough for us to know right now where, let's just say for argument's sake, that the combined company of DraftKings and SB Tech has 2,500 people, right? Mm -hmm. Well, normally we would be building out desks for all 2,500 people. And then the question becomes, are we going to need more space so everyone can have their own individual space, but it's more separated? Are we going to need less space because people are going to share desks? Are we going to need less space because people are going to work from home permanently? We're trying to navigate all that and really figure it out by the end of this year, but we're not going to sit here and lie to ourselves and think that we have the end-all be-all solution right now. Uh, Much like with the merger, as I was just alluding to, it's really about biting it off kind of month by month, day by day to continuously have us move forward and not try to just take it all in once. And that's been really valuable. So, you know, as we're going with this, it's about creating those efficiencies. Uh, We've been using, you know, the occupier platform to get all the leases into one system. Uh, trying to get everything organized so that we're operating as one and not as two. And that just takes time. But, you know, I think we're making a lot of progress with it. But I think the key point to reiterate with it is we're going slowly with it because we're not going to lie to ourselves and think we can just get to a better solution in one false swoop. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And appreciate that shameless occupier plug. <laughs> um, tell, it's, with, with respect to COVID, like obviously really all you need to work from home is like an internet connection and a laptop, maybe a monitor if you're like an engineer or something like that. Tell, tell us what it was like to all of a sudden have to tell like thousands of people or hundreds of people like, okay, you, you all got to work from home. You literally physically can't come into the office except maybe to like grab some personal stuff what was it like equipping a workforce to go remote? Did you have to like invest in new technology, whether it was like software or hardware and like how much of a learning curve was it for people to get used to that? I imagine your employee base is probably relatively young. So maybe it wasn't that big of a shock, but I I would imagine just like operationally, that must've been an all hands kind of like effort. Yeah, it was definitely, frankly, really weird. And here's what happened for us. So if you recall back in the beginning of March, uh, there was that NBA game where Rudy Gobert had that whole incident. They shut down the game, et cetera. So that game literally happened on the night that we were going to run a test to work from home. So I believe that happened on a Wednesday. 
And Tuesday, we had left the office and we had all expected that we were going to do this test work from home on Wednesday. Then am I allowed to swear on this podcast? I won't swear. Sure. And then, sure, okay, fine. Uh, and then <laughs> shit hit the fan Wednesday night, basically, it had, um, in that NBA game. And all of a sudden, that test, we, we never went back to the office. Like, we truly never went back. So what happened, right? Uh, at first, it was kind of business as usual, right? The days were a little bit slow and it was kind of like, just, all right, I guess this is going to pass. And then you got into the middle of March and all of a sudden everyone's canceling their trips. People are starting to, unfortunately, you know, get really serious complications, pass away from the disease, et cetera. And it's like, oh my God, this is real and it's going to be long-term. And, you know, as we went through this all, we, yes, we redesigned everything. So, you know, you mentioned earlier, well, working from home is as simple as an internet connection and having your laptop. For DraftKings, not that simple, to be honest, right? We have a lot of people where like for me personally, yeah, I can do most of my work on my, my home internet. It's all fine. But if I need to go in and approve costs for, you know, anything that we, any money we spend, any construction costs, anything like that, if I need to access any private information, we have to have a really secure VPN because if we don't have that, then we're not protected and our customer's data is not protected, which would put us in violation of a lot of things and more or less shut the business down. So it's definitely a little more complicated for us. And that was a lot of work really where it was mostly on the IT team, right? To make sure that we had our, st our staff set up correctly to be able to not just successfully operate from home, but to safely operate from home in respect to our customers, right? So that was a big part. Then as it came to actually new technology and what we've been doing to the space, it's been a lot of work. So, you know, we're going through an expansion right now at HQ. Uh, we're building out another 20,000 square feet. And, you know, we have been going back and forth on installing thermal readers permanently into the space. In the existing space, we've done everything uh, really poor, per the government kind of suggestions, and we're just trying to be as safe as possible. So on one hand, that's the physical side of the space, working with our architects to redesign floor plans, make sure there's one-way navigation, set up social distancing signage, keep people apart and keep people safe. On the other side of it, it's the, you know, we have temperature scanners now coming in. Uh, we have hand sanitizer stations everywhere. Uh, we have certain doors that are blocked. We're really trying to control as much as we can uh, just to keep people as safe as possible. And it's been really weird because, you know, as you mentioned before, yeah, we're trying to communicate to 2,300 people that, hey, your day-to-day -day life that you've gotten used to, that you've chosen your home for, that you chose your you know, you base your vehicle purchases on, et cetera. That's all going away indefinitely. And we definitely went through a little bit of, you know, push to get people back, I would say within the first two months of this. But now as we've settled in and people really understand how serious this disease is and how a second wave is coming and how we need to treat it as seriously as possible, it's shifted much more to get everything ready, but let's actually start to prepare ourselves to work from home long-term and be flexible with that. So the way that we do it at DraftKings uh, is we have to do this all through mass communication because we don't have the manpower to have like myself or people on my team reaching out to individuals. And so we try to leverage kind of internal technology we have. Uh, we work with this company called Poly, Poly, P-O-L-L-Y, and they're a great survey company that has a Slack integration. So we've mostly been using our Slack integrations to communicate with people, to get feedback, send out surveys, et cetera. And then what we're doing to manage it all is anyone who wants to return to any office, they have to submit a full form, which then I get every form. And then each week on Thursdays, I go through and I will send over the requests to our legal team, basically, with my suggestions of who is able to come back, who is not. And we base that off of like, what is your reason for coming in, right? If you want to come into the office just for the hell of it, then the answer is going to be no. 
if you want to come into the office because you left your favorite pair of shoes there and your water bottle on your desk and you want to come get it, well, the answer is going to be, listen, we understand, but you've made it this far without it. And we would really appreciate it if you held off. So the answer is no. But there are situations where, for example, we're opening an office in Manila in the Philippines and we need to have our you know, DraftKings expats who are going to be moving out there, but they need to train these people, do so in an actual formal environment. So we're going to let them in. We have a VIP team, right? Who needs to get equipment out to the VIPs. We're going to let them in. The IT team is has one person in each day. So it's really got to be a case-by-case basis. And we're just trying to be as cautious as possible because at the end of the day, uh, DraftKings is not going to be the company that one, reinvents the wheel. And two, is the company that caused the outbreak in Massachusetts or Las Vegas or New York or New Jersey, et cetera. It's not going to happen. So we're going to be safe. And it has not been perfect, Right. We have had, uh, you know, people try to come into the office for reasons that don't make sense. We've had some pushback, but at the end of the day, I think that we have full alignment on our strategy with this from the executives, which obviously helps back up any decision that we're making. And while sometimes this stuff needs a second round of reiteration because it's a changing environment, people get it. And as long as we're able to reiterate, we're doing all this, not just for you, you might feel safe but it's the people around you who might not feel safe. It's your family members who might not feel safe. It could be your roommates right. who don't feel safe. That's been really, really important. So it's been really successful thus far. I think we've had, you know, between like Boston and Vegas, which are our two locations that are the only ones actually kind of operating right now. We've got less than 10 people in there on a daily basis in both locations. So people are definitely uh, embracing the work from home at this point, And it's been really good. Yeah. I mean, people just at this point, four or five months into the situation, people are pretty much used to it. Uh, obviously everybody, you know, has their own uh, perspective on things, but you know, if you put the safety first, then there's nothing better that you can be doing as a company to support just like not only the people, but then the growth of the company. I, you guys have been crushing it though, you know, no matter what, I mean, from the business perspective, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how, how the actual business is performing. Yeah. So, you know, all things considered, the business is doing pretty well. Uh, you know, we make a really big effort to try to invest as much of our money back into the business as possible so that we can have the broadest offering of products. Right. So for us, and, you know, I got to give credit to the whole DraftKings organization, right. From recruiting to the people we hire, we're really good at hiring people who are a passionate about their work and B who are resilient and accept and embrace change, which is really important in an environment like this, right? Because when sports get shut down, well, that's our source of revenue. So mm-hmm. us being able to pivot and try to get products out there. So that way people can, you know, make bets if they're in a legal state on say ping pong leagues in Ukraine and esports <laughs> going on virtually and all that is really, really huge for us. Right. Because the way that we're kind of looking at it is, well, if sports are going to happen, there's already going to be an interest on the gambling side of it, on the daily fantasy side of it. But if sports are happening and you're all of a sudden axing out the million people who go to these games each week, well, those people have a greater interest in the games. They're the ones who are spending money to actually attend. Well, those are probably really good customers for us who want what we like to call skin of skin in the game, right? A piece of the action. And hopefully they're the ones who are going to be more active on our site going forward. Right. So, you know, we're being able to, you know, for example, PGA tour comes back, right? Well, you can't go to those tournaments, but you can certainly gamble on those tournaments. And that's been fantastic for us. So the way that we kind of look at it is we're cautiously optimistic, right? We know that as sports leagues come back, it's going to present an opportunity for us to take in more revenue. And our numbers are up over year over year, but that's also because of the line of products that we offer, right? 
Um, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm a expert on kind of the revenue that's coming into our company because it's just not my area of expertise, but you know, we're bringing in money, we're staying afloat, but it's not nearly as much as we would normally. That's what it comes down to. And for us as well, you know, we went through a huge effort on trying to get uh, rent relief and actually defer rent with at every location because while our company has undoubtedly had a lot of positive momentum going forward, this is all hypothetical based on like when sports come back, right? Like we're confident because we think the NFL is going to come back. But if that changes, that's going to change our revenue and that's going to change our projections a lot. So that's why the keyword is cautiously optimistic because, you know, Take the NBA, for example. They're in the bubble now, right? They're all down there. The season's going to start in, I think, two weeks. That's all great. But there's been positive cases. They've done a good job thus far of dealing with it. But what happens if there's a game that goes on and all of a sudden there are two positive cases from that game and then three days later, every person on those teams tests positive, right? Do you remove those teams? Do you shut the league down? What do you do? And we don't know any of the answers to this. So we're just keeping an eye on it. We're making sure that we're prepared either way. And we're taking it as it comes, but I'm not going to sit here and say that we're in, you know, uh, spend mode right now, right? We're trying to be as conservative as possible because while it is optimistic, we're not going to know. And we're probably not going to know for a while because things, as you know, in this time, they just change daily and it's crazy out there. Yeah. Cool. All right. A few final quick questions here. Um, obviously your world is sports right now. What's your, what's your top, top sport? I know you, you love the swing the sticks. Yeah. So I guess it would depend on watching, playing, et cetera. But, uh, since, uh, since I've been out into the real world, I've become a uh, very avid golfer, I would say. So if I had to pick something to do, I'm golfing. Uh, that being said, I'm a huge basketball player as well. I'm, you know, constantly in basketball leagues, soccer leagues, uh, I'll do bowling leagues, you name it. So I try to spread myself around, but golf definitely takes the top spot. Cool. All right. So if you could play golf with anybody, um, on the planet, one person, who would it be? Oh, can I give you a three? Let me, can I give you a foursome? Yeah, yeah. Put together a foursome. All right. So if I were doing a foursome, you know, I think that there's got to be a professional golfer involved. So I'll get to that last because that's the easy one. But, uh, you know, I think for me, and I've actually thought about this, shockingly enough, if I were to get two people out on the golf course, it would be Adam Silver and it would be Jay Monahan. So Adam Silver is the NBA commissioner and Jay Monahan is the PGA commissioner. And I say that because uh, shockingly enough, I did not grow up as a kid with dreams of going into commercial real estate uh, or dreams of running the facilities for DraftKings. Uh, I was much more of an athlete and someone who surrounded myself with sports all the time. Growing into my uh, you know, glory years now, and as I've settled into the real world, I think I can confidently say I will not be joining an NBA team and I will not be joining the PGA Tour. And I've become a lot more fascinated with the business side of it. And those are two individuals who have really, really cool, unique stories where uh, you know, Adam Silver is a lawyer. He went to Duke. Uh, that's where he went to law school. And he is a prominent lawyer, super smart guy, but he's turned that into being able to run one of the best leagues, probably the best league in the world. Uh, Jay Monahan is actually a Massachusetts guy. Uh, it's funny. He, you know, grew up playing a course that I play a lot, very down to earth guy and has, you know, worked his way up through, I think he was helping to run the uh, Deutsche Bank out in TPC Norton in Boston and has worked his way up to now being PGA tour commissioner in for me, as I look at the rest of my life, I want to be able to get myself into a position where I'm taking kind of my most pleasurable pastime in golf, where I spend so much time and turning that into something that I can actually make money with, that I can bring home and turn that into my job. Because I think everyone's dream, right, is to be able to work and not feel like you're working. And that's kind of the, 
I think those are the two people who I'd want to hear from the most. The fourth, and you know, I think this is the obvious one. It would be Tiger Woods. It has to be. Uh, he's just the legend himself. That being said, he's got a little bit of a cloudy past, if you will. So I would settle for uh, Rory McIlroy as my other one. But just being able to play with somebody who is, you know, one of the top three best ball strikers of all time and just see how they actually play the game and how that differs from me, that's always fascinating to see. And it's always, always nice to know you've got a lot more work to do even when you think your game is in good shape. Yeah, no, I think I think I'd go with Tiger too because I mean the cloudy past might might have the best um, stories and banter on the course. You know? <laughs> this is very true. That's <laughs> absolutely true. All right, Mac Friedman, head of global real estate at DraftKings. Thanks for joining us, man. This has been great. Really appreciate your insights. Um, a lot of stuff to unpack there. So you know we will post this really soon, and and we'd love to have you back uh, on again after uh, when we're on the other side of this thing. Sounds great, Matt. Thank you for having me. And obviously, you know, I love uh, you, love the company, love what you guys have been up to. It's been really cool to see your journey. And I am more than happy to come on this podcast and blab to you about real estate, golf, or anything else in between. So thank you for having me. All right, Mac. Thanks a lot. Take care, bud. All right. Have a good one. Bye, Matt. Thanks for tuning in. That was fully occupied with our friend Mac Friedman, head of global real estate at DraftKings. Make sure you check out our Spotify page and wherever you listen to your podcast. Feel free to show some love by dropping a review or telling your friends about the podcast and stay tuned for our next episode, which will be out in about a week. Thanks.